Good morning. Good morning. I'm reading from Genesis 9, 8 through 17, New English Translation. God said to Noah and his sons, Look, I now confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, including the birds, domestic animals, and every living creature on the earth with you, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature of the earth. I confirm my covenant with you. Never again will all living things be wiped out by the waters of a flood. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. And God said, This is the guarantee of the covenant I am making with you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all subsequent generations. I will place my rainbow in the clouds, and it will become a guarantee of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, then I will remember my covenant with you and all living creatures of all kinds. Never again will the waters become a flood and destroy all living things. When the rainbow is in the clouds, I will notice it and remember the perpetual covenant between God and all living creatures of all kinds that are on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the guarantee of the covenant I am confirming between me and all living things that are on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi. It's been a little bit since I've done any sort of public speaking, and so my nervous system is still a little bit like, what the hell? So, just a second. Let's start with prayer. It's always a good place to start. Dear God, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence amongst us in this place. We pray that you, who you are and how you anticipate and how would like us to act is revealed to us in this time. In your name, amen. Amen. So my wife loves to write. She's always loved to write. In fact, her parents still have a copy of her first quote-unquote novel that she wrote when she was in like fourth grade. And she, she did this whole thing. She wrote, she wrote the whole story, and then she typed the whole thing out on the, the family typewriter because we're that old. And, and then she got like some construction paper and drew a, a whole cover, and she like tied the whole thing up. And her parents still have this at their house. I've seen it. It's, it's cute. Um, seriously, she wrote like a 10-page story when she was eight. What the hell? Who does that? Um, and so she did that, and she loved it, and she's loved it her entire life. She went to college for, for creative writing and everything. And even when we were in seminary, she convinced our Old Testament professor that instead of writing the end of term, like, term paper, to let her write a piece of um, historical fiction about the, the book that we were studying. I think, think it's Nehemiah, but I, th- I also think I'm just very wrong about that. Um, memory is a weird thing. Uh, and so she wrote the thing, and she got an A, because she always got an A. And it was really good, because she's a really good fiction writer. She loves doing this sort of thing. Um, the thing about having somebody like Jen in your house is that when I write something and I'm like, hey, Jen, can you read, proofread this for me? It comes back with lots of notes, 
lots of notes. And this was very difficult for us early on in our, our marriage when I was much more of an insecure writer and I didn't realize the editors are your friends. Um, and I took all of her notes very, very personally. And so it became a major source of stress for us until I realized the editors are a good thing and also Jen should never ever be my editor for the sake of our marriage. Um, and so when I moved on to other levels of schooling, she didn't read anything that I wrote and I don't think she still does because it's just like, okay, we're just gonna keep this opening here. The other thing with this is that, so it's, when our kids write things for school, like an, an essay or a report or something, she's supposed to proofread it before it gets submitted. It, and our kids are not so much fond of this, and they don't really like it. And the funny thing that happens with this oftentimes is like she will send them back notes. I mean, they're age-appropriate notes. It's not like you know, the description of your meta-narrative is un, not fully developed here or anything like that. It's <laughs> like this sentence needs to be clear or, or that's not a sentence. That is not a word. Um, stuff like that, right? And so she'll send it back to them, to them. She's like, you need to do this. And this happened, this happened a lot during like COVID when we were doing homeschooling where she would send it. She'd say, okay, you need to do these things. And this is actually a downside of doing all your homework on computer is what they would do is they'd take that and they'd go back to their computer. They'd select all the text of the essay that they had just written that she was editing and they'd delete the whole thing and start all over again. Which, of course, promised that we would go through this whole cycle again, at least once more time, because there's going to be a fresh writing that she's going to come back with notes and be like, you need to do this thing again. Um, all three children did it. It's just one of those things that happens. This brings us to the Bible, of all things, right? So um, Noah is an interesting story. It's a, a story that is pretty well known in our culture. There have been multiple movies written about it. It's a story that's shared between Jews and Christians alike. Um, and so we all kind of know sort of the rough outlines of it, so I'm not going to necessarily give you the rough outlines right now. But in order to really understand what's going on in the story of Noah and the ark, you have to have a little bit more context of where it's placed within the book of Genesis. So Genesis as a book breaks down into two larger chunks. One chunk is called the history, which is essentially chapter 12 through the end, chapter 52, 53, or something like that. Um, and then the, the first chunk, which is known as prehistory, which is chapters 1 through 11 or so. Yeah, I'm excited about this too. Um, and, and actually, I really am. Uh, and, and so uh, prehistory, where Noah exists, Noah's story exists, um, is really sort of a, a series of, of myths that are tied together through uh, genealogies. He's the, and they, they reveal aspects of the nature of God or the nature of humanity or both in some cases. Um, and, and this narrative goes from chapters 2 through 11. Chapter 1 is really its own thing, and it was, probably, it was written by a whole other group of people about 600 years after the rest of the first portion of Genesis was written, or after most of Genesis is written acting, for that matter. Um, but chapters 2 through 11 or so are just like this long, long narrative. Uh, or it's sort of this series of myths that are tied together through genealogies. And so in order to understand Noah a little bit, if you don't know me very much, I have to drink a lot because my mouth gets really dry. I'm sorry. Um, and so understanding Noah means understanding the, the myths that sort of came before and so I'm going to do a really quick, like, broad brush sort of history uh, of what, where we go. So the, this line, uh, this narrative line starts with Adam and Eve in, in chapter 2, where God creates 
Adam and Eve. And the important thing to remember about how chapter 2 describes the creation of humanity is that it describes it in very intimate terms. So the description of God creating Adam is like a potter creating a sculpture. God kneels in the mud and he sculpts Adam out of like the mud with, with God's hands, right? And so God does this very intimate thing, and then God creates Eve in a very intimate way. And, and so the, the whole idea here is that when God creates humanity, God's not just creating another being. God's creating a being that is close and intimate to God. Uh, and so when God creates humanity, God creates, makes essentially a promise to walk with humanity. That, because part of the deal with, between, with humanity is that God's creating a co-being in the universe to exist with. Um, and so God makes this promise to Adam and Eve. But then we get to chapter 3 where, where humans do what humans do and they screwed up. And, and so when God finds out that they screwed up, God makes the universal declaration that I'm done with you. And to quote the Simpsons, he says, you are so banished. Yes, there's an episode of the Simpsons where they go through the entire Old Testament. It's hilarious. And... <laughs> Insightful, too. Um, so anyways, he banishes them because God decides that God's not going to deal with, with humanity that is incapable of following all the rules and being perfect all the time. But humanity is imperfect, and imperfect people will do imperfect things, and this happens. And, but anyways, God banishes them from Eden. And then they have a couple of kids, Cain and Abel. You've probably heard of them at some point. Um, Cain was a farmer. He raised gra- grazed plants and everything. Abel was, a far- was also a farmer, but he raised animals. And so they bring a- an offering to God. Uh, Cain brings p- some plant stuff. Abel brings some meat stuff. And God accepts the meat stuff more than the plant stuff. And Cain gets annoyed by this and, uh, and kills his brother Abel, which is, of course, the most emotionally intelligent thing you could possibly do in that situation. Um, so he kills him, and then God, find, God comes around, and I think it's funny. Funny is a weird thing to say, but it's interesting. So, so in Genesis 3, when God, when after Adam and Eve sin, and in Genesis 5 or 4, after Cain kills Abel, God comes walking around. It's like, what's going on? Like, he's completely ignorant of the whole thing. Tell me, Cain, what happened to Abel? Um, anyway, so God comes and Cain explains what happens and, and God essentially says, well, I'm done with you and, and banishes Cain from his livelihood. The li- and so Cain is never able to raise, to grow crops ever again. So God kicks them out and God decides, well, I'm done with this. And Adam and Eve have another son named Seth and God essentially says, well, I'm going to forget about Cain and Abel and we're going to start over again from fresh with Seth. And so Seth has some kids and who have some kids who have some kids and somewhere down the line comes Noah. Uh, and that w- when Noah comes around, um, we're told that God discovers that the world is full of wickedness. Now, this term wickedness, preachers have had a heyday with. It's because the Bible just says wickedness. We don't know what it is. But every Yahoo preacher on the planet has at some point in time decided that wickedness means whatever subjective thing they, th- they find offensive right now. So oh, I'm assuming that there's probably a, a Yahoo preacher somewhere in America saying that that people in Noah's time had just gotten too woke, and so God decides to wipe them all out. Um, I kid you not. I'm sure this has been said at some place somewhere in the last two years. Um, So anyways, wickedness exists in the world, and God decides, well, burn it all down. We're not going to do anything good with this, and we're going to just burn it all down. So Noah, your family, build a boat that you've never, ever seen before in your life. I'll give you the dimensions and some 
builds the boat. God gets the animals on. I'm assuming God got the animals on because heaven knows I'm not going to be the one wrangling tigers. Um, and so God gets the animals on in the boat. Go, and God turns on the spigot of heaven and thus starts a divine genocide where God destroys everything or presumably everything. Um, and that's just before our path. And that's sort of where we find ourselves with Noah. We're at this point where God has once again decided we're just going to start over. God has done select all, delete. Again. But then we get to Genesis 8, which those of you who have keen eyes know that that's the chapter before our chapter, so we're not quite there yet. Um, And chapter 8 starts with this very interesting phrase, which doesn't sound interesting, but it is interesting. Um, It says, then God remembered Noah and all the creatures of the earth. Which begs the question, when did God forget Noah? Which is what you would think, right? Because well, what happened here? Did God like start the rains and then go to, went to go like watch Netflix and, and like scroll for six weeks and not watch anything and then be like, oh, Noah, right? Like, who knows? I've probably scrolled Netflix for six weeks without so, selecting something. So who knows? No, that's not what's going on here. This phrase, then God remembered, is one of those phrases that's built with a whole lot of nuance in it, but if you didn't know that nuance was built into it, you wouldn't know that it was there. Um, essentially, what's being, what's being said in this particular phrase is then God remembered her promise to humanity, because at this point, Noah is the representative of all humanity, because Noah's family is all of humanity at this point. Um, then God remembered her promise to all of humanity and all of the creatures of the earth. I think it's also interesting that in this whole, in this whole narrative between eight and nine, God is frequently not only elevating humanity to a point, not only talking to humanity, but to all creatures of the earth. From eight, through, eight all the way through nine, God is talking to everything. God's like, I'm not going to destroy everything again. But anyways, God remembers this. And this is an important moment in, in sort of divine evolution where God realizes that control alt delete that select all delete start from scratch every time is not how things work it's not ever going to produce the results that God is looking for God is essentially learning that change and evolution happens in community and that you can't expect perfection from the start the perfection is not a thing that's going to happen with humanity because humans are imperfect because within humanity, per- imperfection is a feature and not a bug. And so God is learning this. And at this point, God evolves from this point, from this all or nothing God to a I'm going to walk alongside you, God. And so I know there's probably one or two people here who is like, wait a minute, God evolved, which is a, a really weighted term. And in the very conservative church that I grew up in, I would probably be dead by now for saying that. <laughs> um, but it's an important thing to think about because, I mean, our culture a lot, we've, we've all been told a lot uh, that God never changes, which is true. It's also wrong. I love being a preacher. I can talk out of both sides of my mouth and nobody questions me. Um, and here's how it breaks down. God, in what I call first principles, never changes. So God's first principles, love and justice. Right? God is always seeking more justice. God is always 
seeking to fulfill the world with love, right? And even in these early stories, God is seeking justice. Because honestly, Adam and Eve shouldn't have done the thing that they did. And Cain really shouldn't have killed his brother. And whatever wickedness actually was probably shouldn't have been happening. God was seeking justice. It's just the means were not necessarily the most productive means. And so in that way, and God's never changing, God never changes in seeking justice, in seeking love. But how God interacts with humanity changes over time. God, God's relationship with humanity has evolved. And if you look, like, especially if you read through the Old Testament, you see God's interaction with humanity change and modify over time. And this continues to happen even today, where God uh, continues to deal with us differently based upon various things. I mean, there are times where humanity needs to move forward, and so God asks more of us. And there are times where humanity itself has shifted, and God, and the way, and God reacts to it and, and, and works with us in that as well. And so God, while God is always the same in seeking justice and love, God will change over time as well. And this moment in Genesis 8 is one of those times. So then God remembered Noah, and God has one of those I'm sorry for my language, but this is the only way I know how to, to explain it. One of those, oh shit, moments where God essentially realizes all the stuff I did was wrong. Like I have like four or five of these a week where you just sort of like, you sit there and you're like, oh, I did this thing and it's so very wrong. Um, and it's a really bad one. So I work on, I work on servers. Uh, and they were, I work on servers for some pretty important websites in our region. And occasionally I'll do a thing and I'll be like, oh, well, look at that. That hospital website is down. Um, happens very rarely. Uh, but it's one of those moments where you're just like, okay, nothing else is going to work in my life right now. Um, and God has that moment. And, but what God does in this moment is important. And because in 8, 2, 8, 8, verse 2, God turns off the water. Essentially, the rain stop, everything starts to dry out. God makes the choice and the decision that I'm going to walk alongside humanity. We're going to iterate together to make things better rather than just sort of expect perfection out of everything. I'm going to, rather than control all delete, God says, okay, well, let's actually just do the edits that are necessary. And so God decides to walk alongside humanity. He, and this is an important thing for us to remember because there's a lot of a lot of Western Christianity, and I was so actually I had a whole a whole series of readings of very famous Christian theologians, many names that you would remember, who essentially said these like sermons and things where they essentially said God kind of hates you, but God is love, and so He, he hasn't destroyed you yet, but He really kind of hates you, and a lot of our the way that we understand our interactions with God based upon historical Christianity is based on what could probably be called an abusive relationship where essentially God says, I love you, but if you don't do this thing, I'm going to send you to hell, right? Like, it's, I love you, but you're making me send you to hell, um, and, which is, it is an abusive relationship that we've come to know. No, but when you stop and you step back and you see the way God changes in the Noah story and so much of the rest of the Bible where God says, I'm going to walk alongside you, it's not that abusive relationship. It's God saying, let's work through this together. Let's embrace 
the weirdness that is this relationship and figure out how to make things right. And so that's the thing that happens there. And I'm this far into my sermon, I haven't talked about a rainbow yet, um, which is mentioned four or five times. Um, and we're getting there. But that's the first and most important thing with this, is that God chooses to no longer be an all-or-nothing God and chooses to work with humanity. And there, there are a bunch of offshoots of sort of like really interesting and important sort of moral and theological concepts that go with this, and I'm happy to talk about it. We just don't have time to cover them all. But this is an important shift in God's relationship with humanity to say, I'm going to work with humanity as opposed to I'm just going to expect humanity to do this thing for me. But then, and then he seals this promise with the rainbow that we're all familiar with. And the rainbows are great. And I like rainbows, and it says rainbow in the text and everything. And the problem is that the text, the original text, the Hebrew, doesn't actually say rainbow. It doesn't say rainbow. And when I first read this, I was like, oh, that's weird. And then I read this commentary where I'm like, well, actually, the word used here is the word bow. And it's not just bow. It's a bow like a bow and arrow. But it's a really specific bow. It's a warrior's bow. So think... Think something like Legolas from Lord of the Rings or Robin Hood. You know, these people who use a bow, and it's like a warrior's bow that they use to kill things, right? It's that kind of bow that it said. And the way it's written is God says, and I will put my bow in the sky. And this is another one of those things, kind of like, and then he remembered, that comes with a bunch of nuance, and it's a metaphor that's, that's ripe for understanding, where essentially he's saying, I'm taking my weapon of war and I'm putting it away. God has, has at this point, chosen to not be at war with humanity, is what it is. There's a a couple commentators that make a really big point of the fact that it's not just the bow, but it's a bow without any arrows. Where God has has put away away the weapon of war and said, "I, I will not destroy the earth anymore. I'm no longer at war with humanity. I'm not going to punish you for your imperfection anymore. And this is an important thing for, to understand that God is not seeking to destroy us. I, I, one of those things, those uh, readings that I was going to do is this, uh, is this sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which kind of sort of hems you in when you write your, call your sermon that. And part of it is, it says, how does it go? Um, he says, God holds you above the fire like you would a bug. And if, if not for his restraint, you would be destroyed. Right? And this is the way that so much of Western Christianity understands our relationship with God. That God loves you, but he's so annoyed with you, and you're just fortunate that God is gracious enough to not kill you. Right? And it just it sits there. But God has put his bow in the sky. God has given up the weapons of war against humanity and chosen to walk with us, to be a companion with us as we walk through life. This is where, this is the importance of the Noah story. And I, I swear to God, I, 12 years of theological education, and until I read the commentaries this week on this passage, I had no idea that's what was going on here. It blew my mind. Like, I was reading stuff to Jen. I was just like, holy crap! 
Like, there's a lot of words there that aren't really appropriate for church or in between. I was, it just blew my mind that this concept exists because, like, I'm familiar with all this stuff, this, this stuff where it's like, you need to fall in line or you're going to be destroyed. It's part of American Christianity. But God has put his bow in the sky. God does not seek your destruction. God is not mad at you. All these yahoos, which is my word for a whole bunch of other adult language, um, they come out and want you to believe that unless you fall into whatever subjective line of moral morality, God is going to destroy you, are just, they're weakening who God is. They're weakening what God wants to do with us. God has asked us to be partners. God has said, I'm not going to be at war with you. God loves you. He's not seeking to destroy you. They're not actively seeking to find ways to trip you up. God loves you. That's the point of Noah. That's the point of what happens there. And the interesting thing is that, like, if right after this, like, right after the ark story, Noah's family gets effed up beyond all recognition. Like, it's, like, seriously, take some time, read the second half of chapter 9 and chapter 10. You're just going to be like, who are these people? They, it gets bad and fast. But God continues to walk alongside them. Um, I've probably been going for too long. But... Yeah, I'm just going to stop with that. God is not at war with you, and God has chosen to walk alongside you. And he's going to come up. I forgot his name. I'm sorry. Um, and we're going to go into a time of, of reflection. And I want you to, to spend this time contemplating what it means to have a God who is not at war with you, and a God who has chosen to walk alongside you. And as we're in Lent and we're starting to conceive of what it means, why we need a Savior, and we start looking forward, looking towards our, our failures over the last year, I want you to remember two things. When God realized that God had made a mistake, God changed directions. God changed. When we find that we've made mistakes, we should change as well. And that is a reflection of God. Choosing to make things right is a reflection of God's God and God's personality. And secondly, I want you to remember that God is not at war with you for that thing. God does not hate you. God is not trying to destroy you. 